You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. On any given day, we have dozens of interactions and conversations. Conversations with strangers, close friends, in coffee shops, at work, over a meal, or on the phone. Some conversations are quick and light. Others are long and deep. Conversations matter. They hold the potential to change our whole day, or in some cases, our whole lives. As we read about the life of Jesus from the words of his close friend John, we see that Jesus was constantly engaging in intentional, crucial, and life-changing conversations. These conversations that Jesus had centuries ago can still impact us today. Do you have a nickname? Nicknames are interesting. You can't give yourself a nickname. They have to be assigned to you by someone else. And oftentimes the nicknames we get are not the ones we would like. You would hope to get a nickname because you did something cool. You hit the game-winning shot and they call you Clutch. But oftentimes we get nicknames because we mess up when we do something silly and all of a sudden we get called something associated with that event, with that moment that we'd like to forget and we'd like to move on, but that unfortunate nickname sticks and it follows us, sometimes for the rest of our lives. It's interesting that a lot of Jesus' closest friends had nicknames. Jesus even gave some of his followers nicknames, like Simon. Jesus calls him Peter, which means rock, which is a pretty cool nickname. And it sticks so much so that we don't think of him as Simon. We call him Peter most of the time. But not all of the nicknames that Jesus' followers were given were given by him or were quite as cool. In fact, some came much later. And some, my guess is, the people would like to be forgotten. These unfortunate nicknames that stick with them. Last week, we looked at a conversation that Jesus had after he had been executed and raised from the dead with one of his close followers, Mary Magdalene. And she goes to the tomb, finds it empty, and she's surprised to have an encounter with Jesus. And she has the privilege of being the first one to announce Jesus's resurrection after Jesus has this important conversation. But that time where there's a sort of unknown, where the disciples have not seen the resurrected Jesus, there's a lot of things going on in their hearts and in their minds in this moment. That first week of mourning after someone passes is particularly hard. It's a particularly heavy and sad time. But when you mix into the normal grief someone would be experiencing after one of their close friends was so brutally executed, in addition to that grief, they also have a level of fear because here they are, someone who they had followed, who they were associated with, had been labeled an enemy of the state and had been executed by the state. So here they are, they're sad and they're afraid. And that's where our story picks up in John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I can't imagine what it would be like in this moment. All the emotions that you would have been overwhelmed with. I think it's interesting that Jesus' first words to him are, Peace be with you, because they need some peace. They need some calm. They need some clarity in this moment. They're overwhelmed by sadness, by grief. And now all of that flips. And they're probably overwhelmed with joy and excitement. They have questions and concerns. And Jesus just says, peace be with you. But not all of his close followers were there in this moment and got this experience. We continue on in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now it's interesting because Thomas has a nickname. He's called twin. Uh, We don't know why he's called twin, but he probably had a twin brother or looked a lot like somebody. But instead, we know him by a different nickname. We often call him Doubting Thomas because of this moment. But why does Thomas doubt? What is it that he's actually doubting? Well, Jesus' resurrection seems to have defied Thomas's expectations. But it's not just Thomas's expectations that were defied. It's everyone's. See, not everyone at this time who followed God, who was trying to live a religious life, believed in the resurrection. In fact, this was a big contention between two major religious groups of Jesus' day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, they were kind of the temple ruling class, the, the priestly people, and they were in charge in Jerusalem, and they did not believe that God was going to resurrect people. But the Pharisees did. Now, they were sort of the populist group, a little more widespread. And although we often see Jesus coming into conflict with them, if you were reading the teachings of the Pharisees, you would see that he had a lot in common with Jesus. The Pharisees and Jesus actually were on the same page on a lot of things, including the idea that God was going to resurrect people. But here's the deal. For the people who believed in resurrection during Jesus' day, most of them believed that that was going to happen at the end of time, at the consummation of all things, that God would resurrect everyone at one time. Nobody really expected an individual resurrection. And we kind of see this in John chapter 11. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But just before that, he tells his close friends, I am the resurrection and the life, because they don't understand. They think that resurrection is only something that happens at the end of time, that their brother who had died would eventually be resurrected by God. But they didn't understand that Jesus was offering a resurrected life to Lazarus right then in John chapter 11. So when we get to this point where Jesus has himself died, he has been executed and his followers are afraid and they're overwhelmed. The idea of Jesus raising from the dead was the most unlikely outcome. 
There were other leaders who had led revolts of different types against the Roman government, against the the ruling class in Jerusalem, who had led populist movements of people who had taught a different way of approaching God. And when they were executed, their movements died off because they were dead and they stayed dead. No one expected this outcome. And it wasn't just Thomas who doubted this. It was lots of people who doubted the idea of the resurrection. Much later on, the Apostle Paul, who was a convert to Christianity, wrote to a church in Corinth, and he says that when we talk about Christ crucified, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. See, this idea that God would willingly sacrifice himself is ridiculous on the face of it. And the idea that someone would come back from the dead is kind of absurd if you think about it. And followers of Jesus, us Christians today, do ourselves a disservice if we ignore the bigness of this claim, the absurdity of this claim. So Thomas had doubts, but it's kind of reasonable that Thomas had doubts. So here he is, his close friends have told him that Jesus is raised from the dead. And he says, I will not believe it until I see it and touch it, until I can know with my own eyes and my own hands that Jesus has actually resurrected. The story continues in verse 26, John chapter 20, 26. Eight days later, eight days later, he goes like an entire week without knowing. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He shows up this time, the same words. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I want you to notice here what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't come in just criticizing Thomas for having doubts and questions. He he could have come in and been like, how dare you not believe me? How dare you you ignore the message of your friends? How dare you have missed all of the hints that I dropped throughout my ministry that this is exactly what I was going to do? He could have come in and criticized Thomas for having questions and doubts, but he doesn't do that. Also, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't answer all of Thomas's questions. He doesn't go, hey, here's exactly how this whole resurrection thing works. And I want to show you like the ins and outs of like physically versus spiritually, how this plays out. No, he just shows up. That's what Jesus does. He actually just shows up. And he doesn't just show up. He shows up and offers Thomas exactly the help he needs. Thomas has said, hey, I want to touch the nail prints. I want to touch the hole in his side. I want to physically see and experience. And that's exactly what Jesus offers. He shows up physically and allows Thomas the opportunity to touch, to see for himself. And then it's interesting because what Jesus does is he calls Thomas from disbelief to belief. And I want you to understand here that belief isn't just about information and knowledge. It's about experience and trust. One of the things I think is really interesting and often overlooked about this story is that God can handle your doubts. God can handle your doubts. Whatever doubts and questions you have, God isn't offended by those. The Bible records people of faith expressing doubts, frustration, and disappointment with God from start to finish. 
One of my favorite places to find this is the book of Psalms. It's a collection of songs that were, and poems that were written over a long period of time by different people in different experiences. And oftentimes, they very directly express their questions, their concerns, their doubts, their frustrations to and about God. And the Psalms is a great place, a good resource to go if you're experiencing some of these doubts and questions because the Psalms express the same thing. Uh, another interesting example of this is the prophet Elijah. He had these great miraculous experiences where God showed up, but yet he was still frustrated and he was, felt like he was alone and he felt like God wasn't supportive of him in the ways he needed. And in 1 Kings 19, we see that after he's challenged the authorities of his day, he's on the run from the queen Jezebel, and he just goes out into the wilderness and sits down, and he's, he's ready to give up, and he's frustrated with God. And rather than criticizing him, God shows up and provides food and nourishment and rest for him. Another good example of this is the, the prophet Habakkuk from the Old Testament. Habakkuk 1-2 opens with this. It says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long will I need you and you not be there for me? See, having questions and expressing doubts is not a bad thing. And it doesn't lead us away from God. It's really popular these days to talk about deconstruction. And I think it's interesting because there's two sort of extremes that people usually fall into when they talk about deconstructing. There's those who feel like they're the first ones to ever ask questions about their faith and to wrestle with difficult topics and like they're paving a new way. And then on the other extreme is those who are saying, hey, this deconstruction stuff's awful and no one should ever do it. It's so bad and evil. But the reality is that wrestling with doubts, whatever label you put on it, can actually refine our faith. It can make our faith stronger. Unless, of course, we're told that doubting and asking questions is off limits and unacceptable. See, when a church or our Christian families or the way we've thought about God doesn't allow us to wrestle with difficult questions, we are faced with a choice. Do we continue in a faith that seems incompatible with reality, or do we walk away from our faith? We create sort of this false tension, this false choice for ourselves, and it makes it so that we're not allowed to wrestle with those doubts. We either have to embrace the doubts or, or we have to live inauthentically. And the Bible holds up examples of doubts and questionings constantly as part of the authentic life of faith. So back to John chapter 20. And Thomas and his story, he gets this label, this nickname of being Doubting Thomas because he wanted to see for himself. He wanted the same privilege that his friends had had to see and to touch and to experience for himself. So how did Thomas respond when Jesus doesn't show up with criticism and he doesn't show up dismissing him, but instead offers him exactly what he needs and calls him from disbelief to belief. Well, this is what Thomas did. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
I love the story of Thomas because it's not just a story about doubt. It's a story about wrestling with the deep questions of faith and how do you deal with disappointments and when God shows up differently than you expected. Thomas is a good example for us of what it looks like to wrestle with doubt. So how do we wrestle with doubt? Well, I think the first thing we can do is we can ask questions. The Bible tells us pretty clearly by the way it lays out questions about faith, that you can talk openly with God about your concerns. God is big enough to handle whatever questions and doubts and frustrations you have. So talk openly, pray to God about the questions, concerns, and doubts that you may have. But the other thing we need to do is we need to open up to trusted spiritual mentors, people that we can rely on to guide us and direct us when we have doubt and question. See, Thomas's friends wanted to offer him their personal experiences. He wanted to experience it for himself. We would all benefit from listening to the wisdom of people we trust. So ask questions, talk openly with God about it, but also listen to people you trust, trusted spiritual mentors about your doubts and questions. The second thing you can do is you can seek God. Because I believe with a lot of us, the thing we set out to find is what we will find. And if we're open to seeking God in these moments, it really changes the trajectory of the way we wrestle with our doubts and our questions. Are we really trying to find God in these moments? And the third thing we can do is we can be open to what we find. A lot of times we've come to conclusions before we get to the end. And when we wrestle with doubts and we try to find our faith through these tough, difficult situations and questions, we need to be open to the idea that maybe God will show up in ways that we weren't expecting. 